This is Advanced Fashion Disruption Season 2. Co-hosts Benson Roberts III and Megan Somerville record a master lesson in sell-through at market. Well, right. Well, um, I know that at one point in time we were talking about um, not just going to market and having market be really most designers goal should be market as opposed to runway shows um and knowing which market to go to so like earlier um when we were um on the phone for our um, phone of fashion fuck up uh we were talking about uh menswear week right right and um that you know knowing your audience and knowing where you're going to get the um the most bang for your buck or the longevity of um, people talking about you is finding the correct placement to market your um, your brand, your looks, your collection, whatever whatever it is you're trying to, to put out there. And so I guess what made me think of this is um, there's a local designer, and I think we talked about her before, that she knew that the menswear line that she was working on, because it was geared towards really athletic, buff, buff men, that going to a market um, where fitness was the primary goal that they would stand out there and so i thought you know talking about you know knowing your market market is also a good idea (laughs) okay so we can talk about um you know people when they think about las vegas and market they're always thinking about magic but there are now like four or five shows that happen at the same time yeah there's the las vegas apparel show there's the retail market expo there's the um las vegas uh, Magic Las Vegas, Retail Market Expo, Las Vegas Apparel Show, um, and the Apparel and Clothing Trade Show. And Curve for I the think. Lingerie Swim people. Right. There's a whole mm-hmm. shit. Uh, the ANMA Trade Show, Off Price, Project, um, GSI, Archidex, Online Sourcing at Magic, Magic Las Vegas, that's all Magic, Project Las Vegas. Agenda Las Vegas, that's not even part of Magic. Uh, Women's Wear in Nevada show at Caesars Palace at the same time. Source Direct at ASD. Bridal Spectacular. There's a whole bunch of shows uh, that sprung up around Magic. And some of them, I'm told, are are even being as successful or more successful now. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that, um, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a ton of designers that are spending way more time and energy trying to do these regional runway yeah, shows. And like, I got, I got yeah. into the blah, blah, blah show, you know, in my hometown yeah. and like not mm-hmm. the same energy to try to get to market or try to figure out, okay, once I'm at market, you know, what is my scale up plan when I get my orders? Are, are you familiar with ILS, the new international lingerie, lingerie show? Um, I want to say that I've heard it in passing on the um, LinkedIn, but I, because I'm not ready, it's not something that I've been poking around in because um, I'm too obsessive that way. And so I don't poke until I'm ready. <laughs> right. Ro- Roper Cowboy Marketplace, selling items such as horse trailers, saddles, cat clothing, footwear. 
Um, <laughs> the Fabric Expo, Southwestern Women's Expo, Quilt, Las Vegas. God, get me away from those people. Ah, Edge is there, a trade fashion event. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about knowing what your actual market is. And then let's talk about what markets might be appropriate to sell to people who want to buy, to sell to people who are your market. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And and mm-hmm. I sort of want to, um, I want to, I want to look at one of these that is not magic. Uh, Bridal Spectacular International Lingerie Show, Life is Beautiful Festival. It surely is. Vacuum and Sewing Dealers. Gotta love that. Magic Men's. Uh, and what I find fascinating and, you know, what we should remind people is as you're naming off all of these shows, that's another layer in the price of what you're paying, either at the wholesale level right. or even at the retail level, because then your wholesalers are also going to events like this to be able to pick up products. I know, well, that's exactly where they're going. This is this mm-hmm. is where they go. Um, let me let me. Let me entertain you. And do some real-time investigation. Are we recording already? I love you. Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. This this bitch just hits the (laughs) me. I think we're having a chat before we record, and suddenly we are recording, and I'm saying all the worst smack in the world. I mean, you keep telling me, like, to unzip and tell people, you know, expose myself. Well, I don't want to be caught with my pants down and us saying something real important. (laughs) And yet (laughs) you keep catching me. She keeps catching me with my pants down. That's all I'm going to say. Virtually. Wait. So when did you start recording? Did did we outline what we're talking about Moment one, friend. Moment one. That's why I love and hate you, if you ever wondered. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, today, <laughs> good afternoon. Amazing. This is Benson. <laughs> Welcome to Advanced Fashion Disruption, where today we'll be talking about markets and marketing to markets. My co-host, Megan Somerville, Texas top designer, two years in a row, is uh, here today to laugh at me. And um, let's just dive. Let's just do a deep dive. Know your market. Megan, take it. Well, when I first got into designing, I was told, you got to go to market. You got to go to market. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to market. So the very first market I went to was in Vegas. It was a lingerie um, and toys bedroom toys slash I well we were all in separate rooms so like swimwear was in one room classics was the room that I was in um and I was still making things with pretty dated lace um and pretty dated techniques um not that the techniques themselves were um not a great selling point it's just the whole aesthetic at the time when i first started was not appropriate for there but i would I, w- I didn't know until i went um and then there was the fun room which is where like all the um models that were um live presenting different pleasure giving items were giving their presentation of their items. So, I mean, it was like a fantastic Vegas 
affair, if you will. <laughs> and right. So it was just really interesting to um, observe at that time uh, what was out on the market, what my current classics competitors were, and then who were my competitors in the um, other areas and how important placement was at market. Um, and I could have taken less and had a lot more punch. Um, and so there were, you know, so many different things um, before even, go, you know, stepping into market. Like, I wish I had spent the money to just go visit market and hang out and just observe. But instead, I was like pretty bullheaded. I'm like, oh, go to market. Yes, check. <laughs> we're going to market. Um, and so I had no idea about um, how important that um, booth placement was. Um, and I had no idea at the time how important it was to give really quick, really precise answers on how fast turnaround could be for certain order levels. Um, and so even though I was at the right market, I was in the wrong room and I had the wrong product. And then my next market um, I had already signed up for was the Dallas uh, World Trade Center market <clears throat> where they had their retail days. And I was on a miscellaneous floor because I did not have a showroom, um, a room where um, I paid rent every single month to have exclusively my items or if I had a sales rep that the sales rep would always have my items to display, which means having something made up and somebody has possession of it and you can't really sell it. Um, and so there's lots of interesting things about market. Um, not all buyers will go to a miscellaneous floor or a floor of people, you know, trying to get their product out there because they've either tried it before and it's failed or they're just not interested in picking up anything new. They just want to do business with their old partners um, within the trade center. So market's interesting, really, really interesting and regionally specific, right? Truly. And, yeah. and I will tell you, a lot of people, um, as, as you just indicated, you did a bit of research, but you'd never been before. So you had no idea what floor to be on. And I have seen so many young designers and apparel companies, because not every apparel company is run by a designer. Some of them are just marketing execs trying to make some cash off of selling t-shirts and branded jeans. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of our apparel culture. But they, they go to market never having even walked a market. Mm -hmm. And I tell everyone, you really should go walk. If you're thinking about doing magic or uh, pool or a swim show or the lingerie show or a bridal expo, go to the market before the one that you want to go to and walk it. Get an understanding of what each section is. Get an understanding of how um, people set up at market. You know, I, I, I've seen people go and think that they were going to sell just renting their 10 by 10 space with a table and a banner. And mm -hmm. sure, you might sell that way. Um, but honestly, what everyone does in their 10 by 10 space, for the most part, especially the successful brands who generate interest in visitors and stops, they're setting up a full pop-up concept. And oh, um, look, feel that, that is important to know. It's important to budget for. Um, and not every market is created equal. Maybe you're not ready for the magic market. Maybe you should go to the Atlanta market show, which is a great apparel show. They also do a Las uh, Vegas market apparel show. It's a great organization. Um, so research your markets, um, and, and then the, the pinpoint one or two, most markets you can sign up for just to walk them. 
you can sign up as a participant. Uh, they obviously are not charging people to come to market because who the fuck would pay to go and shop to spend money? Um, I tend to favor the sourcing floor at um, Magic, uh, sourcing Magic. I, I'm I'm uh, friends um, with the president uh, and sales director of sourcing. And they, they put up uh, an American people. You get people from all over the world with all sorts of sourcing. You need buttons, you need labels, you need tags, you need stamps, you need prints, you need fabric, you need sewing machines. So they're all going to be on that sourcing floor. But about uh, eight years ago, um, Bob Berg started an, a, a pavilion of the Americas, uh, U.S. market place. And um, they wanted to get U.S. made clothing in the, the sourcing because I, when a person's a buyer for a store, they are sourcing garments for the store. It's the same thing as us sourcing fabric or findings. Mm -hmm. So they um, they quickly realized that they needed a get. And a get is the thing that draws people in to look at what is in your part of the market. Um, if you have the budget for it, I would tell you to do pool or do um, project or do the women's wear daily floor at um, market because those are some of the most walked floors by buyers. So what uh, Magic Sourcing and Bob Berg did is they contacted the Department of Commerce. And now a tax break is given to any store who buys from the sourcing floor designers. Mm -hmm. And that was a hell of a get because it's a great tax break. It's a great tax incentive. Um, and people know that, that what they're buying there is American made. Everything is vetted. You know, I can't take in my my uh, Laotian made um, slip dresses and pass them off as American made. They are they're vetting everyone to make certain. And for us, it's awesome because we set up as uh, apparel makers and sourcing agents. Mm -hmm. um, and we are the only group to this point that I know they may have expanded this since the last time I was at market. I haven't talked with Bob in several years moving and COVID and you know, losing a toe and dying and, you know, that all got in the way. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> they allowed us, because we're an American maker, manufacturer and sourcing agent, well, we need to show what we make. So we could bring in all of the lines of apparel by designers that we make for. And it didn't make sense to have them on display to show what we can do for an apparel uh, company if we couldn't sell them. So uh, at the point that, that, that I'm speaking of, and we're talking about five, six years ago, we were the only booth in all of Magic that represented multiple designers. And it was an awesome buy-in for designers um, who wanted to show at Magic. You know, we would, we would get a, a, an awesome deal on uh, 10 by 20 space, always on a corner. You want a corner space, always get a corner space, pay extra for it. It's okay. Trust me, you now have two lanes of traffic passing by and you're really a point of focus and interest as people are shopping. So um, we would set up and talk about our services and then people would look at the things that we'd manufactured and it, it incentivized the buyers to know that the designer's work that was on display that we had manufactured, it incentivized them to buy from those designers because they were literally attached to their fulfillment. One of the big things that causes people to go, I, I've seen people with brilliant collections, brilliant stuff, should sell a million dollars. They come home empty handed. And it's because uh, a, a seasoned buyer will ask who's doing your fulfillment. 
And if you're, you know, you're Susie, Susie Sunshine, you're like, well, I'm going to sew all these dresses at home on my kitchen table. They're like, pass, because I need you to make 10,000 dresses in three months and you can't do that at your kitchen table. So it was a win-win for everyone. Uh, some of the people we took to market did not do well because they decided it was a Las Vegas vacation. And they left us to be the only point of contact for their collections. Some of them didn't even give us price lists. We didn't know how much to tell people things were. I did really well with with, uh, the Arsenic and Black Lace collection. Sold that like biscuits on a Sunday at a Baptist church convention. And Mark (laughs) Holland had a concept called uh, uh, Legs. Was it called Legs? Legs. uh, Best Leggings or something. And he sold sold so many leggings. um, It wasn't even funny. Uh, so it, it can work. And that was, he's not a designer and that was his first time at market. And, uh, he had a concept to make these cool, funky leggings, um, with no side seams and people ate that shit up. So, um, know your audience, know your market, know what they're looking for. There's gotta be some research. You've got to know what's coming next and then know which market to go for. And I think that, um, I would really like you to speak today, Megan, on how do you determine who your market is? Not which market to sell at, but who is it that you're actually going to try to sell to at market? Well, I think it's becoming really introspective about your brand and honing in on what that person who is buying your brand looks like what they do for a living you know what they like to read um you know is there something that is pop culture that they tend to gravitate like there are all of these um aspects about your buyer and their desire i'm I'm, I'm gonna stop yeah. Because when we talk about buyers, we're talking about retail buyers generally. You're talking about end market user buyer. The yeah. person who's going to buy your clothes from Neiman or Target. Oh, sorry. I thought we were moving on from market <laughs> um, to our, our end buyer. Um, but like, no, essentially- no, no, no. I, I do want you to talk about the end buyer because that is the market. But we need to specify because when I'm talking about a buyer, I'm talking about a wholesale buyer and you're mm-hmm. talking about end use buyer. I just wanted to clarify that. You were totally so, on the right track and I'm sorry for throwing you off. Oh, no I just, worries. I, I know and we I, sometimes forget that people don't actually know the terms that we're using. So I, I try to keep that clear because I yeah. do it myself all the time. Um, but, so yeah, you got to know but, your, your, your end buyer, your end user. Your end uh, user well, buyer. And yeah. like write a journal about that person or multiple people about, you know, who, who they are and what they that embody. Exactly right? it. I tell my students, you need to know where they have lunch. You need to know what kind of cologne they wear. I want you to know what kind of antiperspirant and toothpaste they use. I want to know where they vacation. Where do they uh, take coffee? Where do they work? What do they do for leisure? What kind of vehicle do they drive? How much do they spend on their hair? You literally have to know your end user the way you would know your own spouse or, or significant other. You need to know them inside and out to even begin to understand your end user. And why do they need to understand the end user, Megan? Well, because that's ultimately who's going to buy 
their products and then tell their friends about it and post on social media about how much they love it. All of these things that is intangible in monetary terms for a small designer, um, but goes a long distance um, in the world of quote unquote exposure. And so when you have a client who's willing to pay you for your work, what it's worth at a retail price, then <clears throat> you have found the buyer for whatever retail entity they've bought it from. And so doing your homework about who's doing buying at what retail stores and figuring out how to approach them um, is ideal because sometimes they're a gatekeeper for the owner who's the actual buyer and sometimes they are and you have to tread lightly because it's a delicate position. <laughs> oh, you know, the, the, the retail buyer, the wholesale buyer, the buyer that you're meeting at a market, not your end use buyer. Right. That buyer knows your market. They know their market. They know what what Edie eats. They know what kind of earrings Edie wears. They know that her shoes pinch her big feet because she shoves them into pointed shoes. They know everything about Edie. And you need to show them that your product is for Edie. So mm -hmm. you need to know Edie just as well. So you need to know what the buyer's market is. I mean, you know, some people would come into to my booth. Like the, the first time I did um, a, a boutique show it was the International Fashion Boutique Show in New York, 1994, three, four, something like that. Uh, it was the year that Betsy Johnson uh, launched her shoe campaign. I was in the booth next to her, which was kind of awesome for us. Um, I would have people come in that I, I could just tell from the get-go were not my buyer. Did I treat them differently? No, I was happy to see every single person. Some people surprised me, but generally I, I know what my buyer looks like. I know who my, I, you know, if you come in and tell me that you're uh, um, a store that sells golf dresses, I'm going to tell you, yeah, we got nothing for you. However, if you would like us to manufacture a line for you or create one, here's my card. I'm always mm -hmm. looking for the upsell or the outsell or the oversell or the side sell. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I can do a golf dress like nobody. Um, but that's not my own apparel. I will, I will do custom work for any store. So if they came in and they're like, yeah, I own this little shop. I sold so much shit to um, shops in Boulder, Colorado, of all places. And I'm like, what? Why the hell are Boulder, Colorado into all the... It was very goth and very new romantic at that show. It was very edgy and very punkety-rockety. Well, you know, uh, come to find out, uh, Boulder, Colorado is where Neuropa is, which is a writing school. And a lot of those writing people were kind of goth and punk. So there were a lot of small boutiques that wanted to buy the shit out of things. I immediately had to keep track of who was buying what and suggest if they were close together that they not buy those items. Uh, you know, Wolfen Store bought this whole line of shirts. Why don't you consider this line? Because they don't have that, which is another thing as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a seller, you need to be aware of. Uh, one of my one of my least favorite places to shop is Rodeo Drive. I love Rodeo Drive. Rodeo Drive is fabulous. But you can go from shop to shop. No, I'm lying. Not Rodeo Drive. Melrose. Melrose. I love the Melrose district. It's high-end boutiques and very edgy and very punk and very fun and very nightclub-y. But you can go to 10 different shops and find the exact same shit in every single shop. And, and so what a, what a savvy shopper does is they shop the entirety of 
the Melrose Strip, they take note of who has the thing they want cheapest and they go buy it there. So uh, when we would cold call Melrose, I would tell them, if you take you know, a set of these dresses, I will lock those to your store. That doesn't mean that your neighbor cannot carry um, my line, but I will not sell those 12 styles of my line to your neighbor. They can buy their own set of styles. And so as people bought dresses uh, on those cold calls on Melrose, I would pull them out of the sample bag and back to the van they would go. Mm-hmm. And we had backup samples to replace them because we don't want to go to the last store with like the last five dresses. So we always had stuff that we could switch in or switch out. And, well, and, and that's really typical to the industry <laughs> because when I was in Austin, I was investigating opening up a lingerie shop and there were a couple of standards in some lines that I felt were very important um, when people were requesting things to have in stock. And the first thing that the company asked me was, how close is the closest lingerie shop to your proposed location? And because it was within 20 miles, they refused to do business. And so it is about saturation in the market. And, you know, you're talking about what the saturation in the market in, you know, small uh, ski towns. I have definitely seen that here. Um, And then on um, larger high-end shopping strip areas that it's true you have to know the buyers of those areas and say hey listen this person's one block down like you can have this in the brocade but there is zero way you're going to have it in the solid velvet (laughs) you know right right, but you have to know that market you have to to know those things and you also have to be just a savvy enough salesperson so i would suggest if you're a young independent designer or somebody who thinks that they're going to start an apparel firm if you have more money than cents. Love you. Call me. Um, I want you to to get onto YouTube and take multiple, multiple sales um, seminars. I want you to watch sales videos. I want you to understand how to sell. When I was training a sales team out in San Francisco once, um, I, I finally set them free. I let them watch me with several stores, made some sales, set them free. And the woman was obviously in love with what we were showing her up on Russian Hill, one of the best areas for shopping, the high end. We took our best shit in there. Uh, none of the clubs stuff, none of the stretch. It was all the best brocades, cocktails and, and balobas. And and they were they were doing an, ad, an adequate job, but they were not doing a great job. So finally, I, w- I just pretended to be a shopper in the store sort of i was listening and knew what they were talking about while i ignored them i think i even bought a pair of blue shoes to make it more realistic because i fact the fixation and a fascination with and blue shoes, shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and shoes you know i love shoes um so i finally stopped i said i said you guys are doing an awesome job i said ma'am these are this is a sales team that i'm teaching and thank you for being so kind to them uh what would I need to do to get you to say yes? Because I can see that you're interested, but there's something holding you back. And she said, well, I would want these, you've used Venice lace straps. I would want them to be adjustable. Not a problem. We can change them out. If we can't find sliders that will deal with the Venice lace, we will change them out. I can make them adjustable in other ways. Done. What else? And she said, and the price point's a bit high. I said, well, the price points that they're giving you are for, you know, um, you taking one of each size. How many are you thinking about taking? I can give you price breaks. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to automatically, even if you just take 12, I'm going to set you at the at the first price break of you took two dozen. 
Um, and she ended up buying 36 of 20 styles. That's amazing. Uh, because I just asked her, what would it take to get you to say? That's a very potent question. What would it take to get you to say yes? Sometimes you can have to just be honest and cut through. And the other thing that I will tell you young people and you young apparel companies, um, learn how not to take no for an answer. Right. It's well, just the opposite of sex. You need to learn consent for sex. But when you're trying to sell something, people will say no knee jerk. They will say no until they say yes. Um, my rule of thumb is I, I will I will fight past four, four no's. If I get a fifth, no, we're done. That's fine. That's a no, no. But but people will sometimes say no just to get you to walk away. They love your stuff, but they're worried about it. Or so you you've got it. Every time they say no, you've got to address the re. No, I don't know if that's the right age range for our shoppers. Mm-hmm. So you you bypass that. Well, we could make this longer. We could add sleeves or add a jacket to this dress. Um, I don't know. The price point might be a little low. Well, we could change the fabrics and augment them with beading and rhinestones. So, you know, there are ways to get around a no when you're dealing with a buyer. And this goes for being at market. People at market will give you all sorts of clues. Now, I'm going to tell you, and this, this is the kind of thing that you would... Uh, get if you went to Patreon and and bought uh, time with me or time with Megan. I'm going to tell you my biggest secret to my success when I go to market. You ready? Mm-hmm. When you go to market, the first thing you'll notice is this huge corral of the most beautiful boys and girls you've ever seen. Gorgeous. Obviously models, actors, dancers, depending on where you're at. And they're all wanting to get hired to be your product model. Um, and they're very, they perk up, they perk up like, like erections, they all spring up when they see me coming through with all the cases and all the uh, bric-a-brac to set up our space. And then behind us trail four or five of my own obvious models and they all deflate like used condoms. It's kind of sad and kind of funny. Um, why do I, why do I pay for my models to travel? Why do you suppose I do that? Um, well, depending on flight yeah, and DM, hotel where you're showing um i give them all of that why do i pay for my models to come well you you're able to tell them exactly what you want them to say about the garments when people stop them i mean that is that is that is a very big part of it they are as knowledgeable about the garments as my salespeople because they're not models they are beautiful salespeople. Mm-hmm. um and we train them to to be aware of who is looking at them, who's responding to their body, who's responding to the clothing, who's responding to their body and the clothing. Generally, they will work in pairs or, or, or you know, even all go out together because that's an amazing presentation. And, you know, we train them if it's a dude and he's looking at your titties, grab him and don't walk him back to the booth. Take him the long way and ask him the probing questions. How many boutiques? How much is he looking to spend? What kind of deal does he need? What is he hoping for? And they come back, and by the time they get that that buyer to our booth, they have pre-sold him, and they have enough information to say, uh, Terry, this is John, and John is looking for a new cocktail line uh, for his bridal store. He's got three of them in Denver. Um, He's a little budget conscious, so be kind. The sale's already almost done. So my models act as openers. And my yeah. salespeople in my booth are the closers. If if um, 
Kevin is walking with uh, Mr. Bernstein, and Mr. Bernstein has 17 stores, and he can't get his eyes off of Kevin's butt. Um, Kevin brings him and says, Benson, this is Mr. Bernstein. He has 17 stores, and he's looking for collections for all 17 of them. He's going to need some some um, discounted wholesale prices. The sale's almost done. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Kevin knows to stand there and pose and act sexy as a distraction because that man is now so turned on, he's not going to say no to anything. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 I'm a brilliant marketing strategist. I, my, my models are not models. They are, they are opening salespeople who pump every single person that they bring to my booth for information so that they make certain that they're going to hand them to the salesperson that they will be most, um, uh, will respond the best to. This yeah. is what market is. This is what knowing your market is. Even my sales people, my sales models, they know how to pinpoint their market and the people who are looking for their uh, garments. Oh, and they, they get they get paid to be there and they get a percentage of sales because they're opening salespeople. And w- we can do several hundred thousand dollars off of one sale. It's not unusual. So that's a, you know, when you're getting, oh yeah, okay, so you're getting 3%, but 3% of $100,000, 3% of $300,000 is 9,000 bucks for one conversation. So um, I have a definite, definite, definite strategy. I have a definite way of interacting with buyers and I know my shit. How? Because because I learned, because I went to my first market and the first day I sold $36. Thank God Betsy uh, Johnson came and had a talk with me about my pricing and told me that I was advertising myself as being foreign made or cheaply made. I needed to triple everything. And I did. And we ended up selling $136,000 the next day, $182,000. And then on the last day, I think we did maybe maybe $40,000. But that was just the start. A lot of those buyers don't buy at market. They went home to places like Boulder, Colorado, and then suddenly I've got all these orders coming out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, a lot of what you sell at market doesn't actually sell on the market floor. Um, have receptions. Make sure that you rent a nice suite. Spend the money on it. Invite people who are really close to biting or that you have a good feeling about to your reception. A lot of the sales happen in the hotel rooms, not on the beds, at the reception parties, because people have, if they've shown up at your party, they've decided they want to buy something from you. There's a whole culture to it. Uh, And then many more sales, probably 50% of the sales do not even happen at market. They will happen in the months following the residual sales. Because people come by the booth and pick something up and then they want to order after they've thought about everything. Well, well, it's all, they want to see everything before they order. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes it's a company that has 12 um, buyers out at eight different markets at the same time. They come back and they bring everything they've seen. They bring all the information. They put it all on the table. And then as a group, they make choices. They present the choices for the the square footage they have to fill to the owner, the head buyer, the person who's actually going to sign the check. And they will choose the ones that they're going to invest in. It's it's a complex system. It's not not a fucking garage sale. You can't just throw out um, really cool stuff and hope somebody comes by that wants a chicken eye swinging clock. You got to know that you're going to the market where everyone wants a chicken eye swinging clock and yours better be the best. And when, and I don't know if people know that when you go to market that um, as a buyer or as a person that has a booth, the 
people are placing orders. They're not walking away with stuff. That's not how the market is set oh, that's up. Oh, not, yeah, not cash. <laughs> I, no, I will tell you, <clears throat> some markets. Very few, will, but yeah. Will, will some, even magic will do it, uh, at least on this sourcing floor. On the last day, you can cash and carry samples. Why? Because they are savvy enough to know how expensive it is to ship crates and chests of clothes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, super yeah. expensive. And trust me, I don't have my only samples in Vegas. We, we make, we probably make three dozen of everything that are sales samples. So we can send out 36 of that garment to 36 different places with 36 different people at the same time. And if something yep. happens to one, no big deal. We have 20 more. So yep. um, you, you've got to, you've got to know it's not cash and carry. Uh, know if it's cash and carry and, and, Bring plenty of stuff to stuff your racks with on that day, because I, uh, that, that I think the forty thousand dollars that we did at, at uh, Ifbe's International Fashion Boutique Show was just cash and carry. I didn't have to pack up half the stuff I had in the booth. Off it went. Thank God. Goodbye, because everyone's fingered it and touched it, so they got it at a nice discount price. It's out of my hair. I don't have to pack it and carry it back on a plane. Don't have to pay for cartage. Don't have to pay for any of that. Um, and also research. New York is a hard place to do market. Uh, they are a very union heavy place and I'm all for unions. You cannot staple a staple in your booth if you have not hired a union person. You cannot plug your lights in without hiring an electrical union member to set up your lighting and plug them in, which is fine. This is why no one ever burns down the market. But know that going in, we took um, paper clips and safety pins because we couldn't afford the union prices at my first market and everything went up with safety pins and paper clips the only thing that i afforded was uh electrical i pretty much did the same thing in vegas because they have same union same rules yep. um and i made my first backdrop with um shower curtain hooks like just the open ones so like all they did was hook over the right didn't um, even have right. to close them Nice. Right. Super smart. Well, no, I, 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 budget conscious, but you did your research. You understood that you couldn't use a tool because that's a carpenter union thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm all for it. I mean, I, I'm all for it. Those people need work and you're doing a huge trade show and the trade show should employ local people. That's just how good business is done. Um, the other trick that I will teach you who are listening, um, you cannot bring crates in without paying a cartage fee or cartage union fee. So mm -hmm. pack mm -hmm. lots of small suitcases. Mm -hmm. You can make 200 trips with your own suitcases. Uh, everyone can pull two suitcases and not get charged cartage fee or cartage or storage. And it's not cheap. I mean, it no. was significant, really a significant portion of the budget. And so keep that in mind. I mean, when you sign up for market, if you're not going to do the complete research about being at market, you are going to pay through the nose right when you step into that space. That space, that exactly. Space. Thank you for joining us today and Benson's master lesson on wholesale sell-through if you're going to make that investment about going to market. You can listen to all of our past episodes at Advanced Fashion Disruption, but be sure to catch tomorrow's episode when we talk to the creator of Ditto Forms, and you're not going to believe how real it gets.